Hello, and thanks for joining us for this episode of Her Gavel, a podcast where we shatter the glass ceiling for women in law. I'm your host, Stephanie Watchman, and I've been coaching and training women attorneys all over the world for nearly a decade. Women lawyers, no matter where they are in their careers, face many challenges, frustrations, and some fantastic opportunities. On this podcast, I'll be interviewing experts to cover many of the issues I get asked about, like managing stress, career growth, law firm leadership, self-confidence, business development, and even planning for retirement. My goal is to provide you with the tools and tips you need for your own professional growth. And now, let's get on with the show. Hi, and welcome back to Her Gavel. We have a great guest today. Her name is Cristelia Garcia, and she's an associate professor at the University of Colorado Law School. She holds a JD from Yale and a BA in economics from Columbia. Before joining the faculty at Colorado, she was a fellow at George Washington University Law School and spent nearly a decade working in the music industry. Her academic work focuses on intellectual property law through the lens of law and economics. And in her spare time, Cristelia really enjoys hanging out with her husband, two daughters, and Mutz, but really enjoys listening to jazz, watching telenovelas, and drinking coffee. Welcome to the show, Cristelia. And by the way, I also love drinking coffee. Good morning, Stephanie. Thank you so much for having me. I was so looking forward to our conversation because the practice of IP law, it's something that is very complex and there's so many different moving parts to it. I'm actually working with an IP lawyer for my podcast and I was noticing you do you did a lot of work, especially in copyright and music. Can you share a little bit about your background and how you moved from the music side of things to the teaching side of things? You, you've done quite a bit with your career already. Sure. Um, Yes, I practiced for about a decade in both law firms and in-house, over half that time in sort of music and IP licensing specifically. So I started um, getting into IP law, the copyright side of things, really at Quinn Emanuel when I did work outside counsel after was in its sort of forensic stages, figuring out all of the IP licensing and how much was owed to whom. And that helped to launch my in-house career where I started kind of combining what I'd done very early on in my career, which was majors and acquisitions, with some IP work by working on joint venture between the major record labels and what at the time was MySpace, the social network, some of you may or may not be familiar with. And so that's where I really began honing my IP licensing shop and took that experience over to uh, Universal Music Group. So you've really done it all. You've done it all, (laughs) right? You've gone from private practice into general counsel to teaching. You've done it all. What made you decide to go into teaching? So while I was working at Universal, I began, I had been asked to and began teaching as an adjunct effectively or a lecturer. I don't know how they worded it at UCLA because I was there in Los Angeles in a program that was a mix of students who were in the law school and students who were not, who were like in the business school or who were doing like the music, it was a music business certificate type of thing. So I began teaching a couple of classes in that and found that I really enjoyed it, even though it was quite a lift while I was in full-time practice. But I liked that the students always brought a different perspective. Like they asked questions like, as as you would, right, about like, well, why do you do it like that? Which were questions I'd never really taken the time to stop and think about in the very hectic pace of practice. And so I enjoyed that. And the music industry, especially on the light 
licensing side began to get what I would call a bit stale. Basically, as streaming became more and more popular, initially revenues dropped quite a bit and there was less time for fun and creativity on the on the licensing negotiation side. Right. So instead of coming up with term sheets and creative deals, we, especially at the major record label side of things, mostly just came with the take it or leave it deal, which was understandable under the circumstances, but no fun for the negotiator. So I, at that point, decided that what I'd really like to do is be able to take a more, I'll call like unbiased view of the field and just sort of talk about the dynamics of what's going on. And one way to do that would be through teaching academics where I can write and research. I think another way might have been more journalistic, but I enjoyed the teaching side of things so much that I decided to go in that direction and got a fellowship and went from there. Yeah, you have quite an impressive resume. I was looking through it. I was like, there was 14 pages worth of different articles that you've written. And I was like, wow. And also you work with some very cool labels as well, especially starting off with Napster, like in the very, very beginning. So you must have had a great learning curve through all that. I can I can definitely see how that would have been fun for you in the beginning anyway. You know, one thing that yeah. I, I noticed, and we talked about this when we had our pre-show, our conversation, was that when you take a look at IP lawyers, and I, a recent article I was reading in, I think it was the American Bar, said that 70% of IP lawyers who work in law firms are male. And I was wondering about that as a woman in the industry, if it was hard for you to carve out your space. That's a question that I think students wonder about a lot. As, as we were discussing, like, I feel like that's something that comes up quite a bit in sort of office hours. And in some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. I think that one of the things that may have helped me when I was sort of transitioning from, you know, standard corporate practice and merging acquisition stuff into IP specifically is I didn't know that that <laughs> that you mm-hmm. just uh, cited. So I, I didn't have the same, you know, impression of kind of coming up. The other thing I think complicates that statistic a little, and this is what I always try to use for reassurance to my students, is that I think as a general matter, we, the bar, the profession, use the term IP or intellectual property as an umbrella term that really encompasses a lot of very different fields of practice. IP, as a, as a general matter, at least includes the three prongs of patent, copyright, and trademark. Some people would also throw in trade secret, right, which is kind of adjacent to trademark, unfair competition, all this kind of thing. And so the statistic that like it's a lot of, of men, I think, is true in patent, although that's changing, thankfully. And there's actually an initiative at the USPTO right now to get more women on board. I think traditionally, sometimes women have shied away from from patent law because the patent bar is intimidating or they think they have to be, you know, chemical engineering PhDs in order to do it. None of which is true, of course. It helps if you want to be a patent examiner, if you have a, a science background, but you could certainly be a patent litigator without it. And I, I tell them that all the time. But there is that misconception. On the other side of uh, what I think is probably unfortunately called the soft IP world, copyright and trademark, I think there's a lot of opportunities for females and increasingly more of them, particularly in academia where, you know, easily half the um, known scholars in the field are women who are doing copyright and trademark work and requires no particular technical background. You don't have to, you know, be a former artist or musician. And trademark law is, uh, trademark and trade secret is such an accessible field for anyone who's even thinking of going in-house or being like GC because almost all companies have some need for trademark work. So I think that when you slice IP a little more narrowly, uh, we see actually a lot more women than, than it looks like when we take it as a whole. That's encouraging. And hopefully that will continue changing. <laughs> I think that's really encouraging. I mean, with, I've 
worked with so many female attorneys over the years. And honestly, I, I think I've had one IP lawyer in all of that time. And it, it's just something I noticed was like a stark contrast to some of the other areas of practice. I'm also curious, like you talked about when you have your student hours and students come in, what other kinds of questions are they asking of you with regard to either being a female practicing in IP or a young woman um, looking at a and her career path, what are some of the other questions you get asked? You know, so this is not related directly to IP. I think it's probably yeah. more applicable broadly. And um, unfortunately, a lot of the times, one of the questions I get has to do with sort of the best ways to go about networking without getting into uncomfortable territory with senior male partners. Okay, right? tell me so more how, about that. I'm how, so like, you know, and this is, you know, again, ridiculous, but it'll be like, well, how do I send, you know, because a lot of times the general networking advice is, hey, you know, pre-pandemic at least, is, yeah. you know, networking's awkward, but put yourself out there, right? Like find someone who's doing something that you think you'd like to do at a firm and email that person and say like, hey, can I take you out for coffee? I just want to hear about your past, right? People love to talk about themselves and, and then you can go, you know, buy them a coffee. They probably won't let you. They'll probably buy your coffee, but in any event, you go and they talk about how they got where they are, and then maybe you get some ideas. And for some of these young women, the emails, the sort of cold emails out to more senior associates and partners and firms or elsewhere, uh, the email of like, hey, can we go grab a coffee, is either misinterpreted or intentionally misinterpreted and can lead to more awkward interactions <laughs> than were intended. I'd be, um, hey, I want a network email. So a bit of time we spend trying to field, um, you know, the best ways to handle that, like the tone and it, Right. things we shouldn't have to be doing, right? But like making sure that the tone is like super clear as to what the parameters are. Um, and also, you know, again, from our institutional perspective, of course, me saying, give me the names of those people who responded inappropriately so that I won't direct students to them. And so there's uh, a little bit of a learning curve for us as folks who are, you know, guiding people towards mentors. Some people are simply better mentors than others for a variety of reasons. No, that's so, I mean, that's so true. I can really see that. I mean, I've been teaching networking and relationship networking for gosh, like my entire career practically. And I hardly ever think about it from the student perspective about how awkward and vulnerable you can be as a student reaching out oh, yeah. to a, a, like a senior lawyer saying, hey, can you have coffee with me? Like I would think that that would be really uncomfortable. And you just shed light onto something that I didn't even think about it. I feel really bad now because I have taught at a couple of university classes and <laughs> didn't have the right amount of empathy for that situation. Like it just is awkward for sure. Yeah. <laughs> does anything yeah. does anything else come up often? Because I think that actually is one really good piece of advice in terms of think about who you want to mentor with or think about who you want to talk to and then maybe come up with a plan in terms of how you want to approach them that you use across the board so you don't always have to reinvent the wheel. Yeah. Absolutely. And relatedly, I think, you know, because outside of classwork, which of course, many students come with specific questions about the substance of whatever we're, we're working on. Um, another uh, thing, and this is related to the networking, right, that students want to talk about is like how to get a job and how to know what kind of job they want to get and these sorts of things. And one thing that I always try to emphasize is, you know, and again, this goes back to networking, but it's just to also, maybe I should say this is part of my like, you know, advice or something, but is to really pay attention to 
the relationships that you develop with your contemporary colleagues, right, with the other students you are in class with you, at least in my experience and the experience of those I see immediately around me, like those are going to be very valuable connections as you get out in the world as well. I got all of my positions from friends and colleagues or folks I'd worked with in one way or another, right? Either someone I uh, who was my client who thought I did a good job and hired me or a law school classmate who told me about an opening here or there, right? So everything really ha- uh, came down to, you know, in some way, shape, or form, networking and having positive relationships with the people who I interact with on a daily basis. So I tell them not to forget about, in their in their eagerness to, you know, get out in the world and, and find something, not to forget about the folks that they're doing this alongside. So where do you think you learned your skill of networking? Gosh, I have no idea. I think I got lucky, honestly. No, I didn't have anyone. I developed a really great friendships in, in law school. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, I think, again, out of pure luck and coincidence um, and not through any sort of intentional plan. Um, and so in retrospect, I've been able to see how useful and helpful that has been, both personally, because I have great people that I can chat with and hang out with, but also professionally for the the, the network and the opportunities that they've exposed me to. But I don't know exactly how I got there. I think maybe a bit out of necessity. I, I didn't come from a well-connected background or, you know, parents who are already doing this or, you know, I knew no one who was a lawyer and no one in my family had ever been a lawyer or knew what law school was. So um, maybe it was just a matter of me having to figure it out. Well, I think, you know, I think it's a, I think having some hustle is a big factor in becoming a very successful lawyer, especially if you are going into a private practice where you have to do business development and you have to do networking. You got to have some grit and some hustle because it doesn't just, just doesn't come to you. You don't just sit there and the phone rings off the hook for the most part once you get going, right? Right. (laughs) Wouldn't that be nice though? So one of the things that uh, I was interested in also is that in your, you know, when I was reading your bio before, um, you know, you're married, you have kids, you have dogs. How do you balance it all? Gosh, uh, not very well, I think. Um, you <laughs> I know, I, I'm, a, I'm at this stage in my young family where it's really triage at this point. Like, I mean, my kids are two and a half and five. My husband and I both work full time. Fortunately, the timing of the children having, um, or, or unfortunately, depending on what that it came, such that I got tenure last year. So that yeah. takes a little bit of the pressure off while I'm still in, you know, the potty training and, you know, oh, God. right on the dog stage of life. Um, but it is, you know, very busy because this is not an age where they're particularly self sufficient. And no, I not think quite. academia, while it's a wonderful life and job, I love it, is, it doesn't lend itself to very good work-life balance because what you're doing in terms of research and writing can be done anywhere, anytime. And so you do, right? Like you get the kids to bed and then you're like, okay, now I can finally like pick back up and do, you know, whatever that, read that article or, you know, write that summary. And so I think uh, I, I like to tell myself like, ah, you know, once the kids are a little older, I'll, I'll like pick up knitting or some other more productive uh uh, you know, um, relaxing, I should say, that productive hobby. Um, but I don't know, like, when that will be. I don't see that right now. There's a lot of just kind of, you know, duct taping things together and hoping for the best. So 
I'm probably not the best advice given on that one. You know what? There's something really refreshing about having honest advice. Like anybody that says, oh, it's easy, you know, we just hire a full-time nanny and somebody's, you know, or somebody stays home. I mean, I didn't have that experience when I had my kid when my kids were young either. And if any when anybody said, Oh, it's easy, we just have a live-in nanny all the time. And it's like, well, not all of us have a live-in nanny, especially during right. COVID. It's hard. Oh my God. It's so hard. I mean, a live-in nanny sounds lovely. I, you know, we're not even organized enough to get that together. So no, we don't have that anyway. <laughs> no, I totally, I totally appreciate, like I look, I totally appreciate the honesty of it because it is hard for the first few years when your kids are young and it does get, be- just so you know, it does get better as they get older, much better. <laughs> Good. That's what worse. I tell myself. Yeah. But then it gets worse again when they start driving. So then you're up all the time yeah. and you'll get a lot of work done then when you're up waiting <laughs> for them to come home. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. I, I, a different type of worry for sure. So you do a lot of, of writing. I know that you have so many different um, summaries and opinions and articles that, that you've written. What do you like the most about writing? Um, I'm asking because I think that a lot of the attorneys who are listening to the podcast never really think about, first of all, teaching necessarily as part of their career plan. Many of them don't even have a career plan. They're like, how do you create, they ask me this all the time, like, how do you create a career plan? Some some people fall into different um, areas because of their strengths. And some people really think through like, this is where I want to be. Like I was working with an attorney who was in private practice, hated billing in six minute increments that wasn't, yeah wasn't her jam and decided, well, I want to, I want to become a general counsel and not have to worry about that anymore. But that's where the career planning ended. Like there was nothing beyond that. So you seem to be continually branching out and just like really looking at at opportunities for yourself in different ways. Like, how do you come up with all of these things that you want to write about and think about? Well, um, good question. I think, I mean, (laughs) In an ideal world, I have, I would say like, oh, I have all these stored up things that interest me. And when I get time, I turn to them, which sometimes is the case, right? Like there will be an observation I've made about the world, either something that came from practice or something that I've read often for me, because it's the nature of what I'm writing, which is often sort of entertainment based. It'll be like a, a news article. And I'll usually get interested initially because it's something where something is happening that is not what you would expect. Um, oh. I feel like that's the basis of my my research agenda, if you will. So like if it says, you know, Taylor Swift and this, you know, big broadcast company reach this deal in which they're going to pay her above and beyond the legal statutory rate. And I'm like, okay, weird. Like why, why <laughs> are they paying her more money than they have to, right? So that kind of thing um, as a person who looks at the world through this sort of law and econ lens would really interest me. And I think I just kind of put a pin in it. And when I have time, I start looking into it and thinking and like trying to get more information and then thinking about like, what are some explanations? And I really enjoy digging into, you know, these sorts of mysteries, if you will, and trying to propose different explanations for them. But more importantly, see if there's anything we can learn from those things, if it is that some artists have uh, more to offer than they might think, or if what we have to learn from it is like, this is indeed a one-off. And if you're not Taylor Swift, this is not happening for you. But in either case, I think it can provide some interesting value and kind of a different way to look at things. Yeah. It sounds like having curiosity and, and keeping curiosity throughout your career is like a really important aspect to thinking about what you want to write about next. Definitely. Yeah. I think that is 
key. If you didn't have that sort of thing, and it's okay, right? But then you you would probably be really frustrated as an academic because like you've got to you've got to write and produce, like that's your job. And if it's a struggle as opposed to like a treat, then yeah, it would be no good. <laughs> Yeah, I get it. I feel that way. I mean, I've written, I've written two books, not, not, nothing even close to it, all that, all that you've written, but it has to spark. There's something that of interest to me that gets sparked. And then I'm like, it's easy after that. It's fun. Other people roll their eyes at me and go, Oh God, I could never, I could never do that. One of the things yeah. that jumped out at me when I was reading through your bio, and I'm going to uh, put a link on our website to your bio was that you did, you were the featured presenter for Taylor Swift's time off tour and wrote about how it involves copyrights, contracts, and personal control of creative works. And I was really curious about, I know we don't have a lot of time, but if you can summarize what that was about, it just jumped off the page. Yeah, we uh, recently, the Cardozo Law School had a, uh, the Law Journal, they had a symposium, so like getting a little conference together that was specifically to dig into this recent news happening that you um, your audience may or may not have heard of where uh, Taylor Swift got into a rather public on social yeah. media battle yeah. with her former record label selling off her masters to Scooter Braun, who's right. probably best known as Justin Bieber's manager and someone who personally Taylor sounds very distasteful instead of selling them to her and then in turn Scooter Braun sold them off to some you know equity fund so she decided to because the terms of her record contract um, incredibly allowed for it after a certain amount of time I think six years or something to re-record all of her masters which is like all of her like hit albums from the past she can uh, re-record them as you know whatever the song is let's say Shake It Off parent the sees Taylor's version, right? right? And effectively compete with herself, uh, except, of course, right. she doesn't own those original masters, like some hedge fund now owns them. So, or I'm sorry, equity fund now owns them. So she is was able to re-record them and we were using that content as a time to sort of break down like, you know, how does this happen? Like, how does she get the right to do it? Is this common? Is it going to be successful? Like, in terms of like, you know, for her um, revenge agenda, perhaps, but would it be successful <laughs> economically um, and, and that sort of thing? So it was a lot of fun talking with, uh, you know, similarly minded nerds about um, how awesome Taylor Swift is and about <laughs> the unique law and economics of, of the wacky music industry. So it's a good time. Well, I was I was interesting. I was following that case as well. I thought it was just so interesting what kind of approach to take and how to think it through. So I was curious about that when I looked at it. I'm like, huh, that looks really interesting. It, it seems like you do a lot of interesting work. And I'm glad that I can share um, your story with the audience as well to say, hey, you know what? Like you said at the beginning, IP isn't just about, it's not just so science heavy, like we think about or pharmaceutical work, or, you know, you need to have an engineering degree. There's so many interesting aspects to it. And I hope that, you know, in our conversation, it brings some light to the very very interesting things you can do, successes you can have as an IP and copyright. And as we're as we're starting to wrap up, one of the aspects of the show that I really love is the two tips in, in two minutes. And this is where we share with the audience, if you have any tips or tools or learnings that you've experienced in your career that you think others would benefit from, love to hear it. So, um, one I will pull from from my what I mentioned earlier, which is to uh, I wish that I had recognized, although it ended up, you know, 
working out for me, I think, for the most part. But I would have done more of it had I known. I wish I had recognized and taken more advantage of just the folks around me at each stage, right? Like, so whatever firm I was in or in-house arrangement, even law school, to really uh, make connections with with folks there that I can keep in touch with because I think that um, sort of multi-level networking is really, really important and at least for me has been um, essential to the way that I've gotten and learned about career opportunities. Um, so I really would stress that. The other thing that I was thinking, I wish I'd known earlier, and I realized this maybe a few years ago only, really, but I guess part of me must have kind of suspected it, um, given the, the sort of topic. And that is that you hear this often, but like I cannot stress it enough, that phrase, fake it till you make it. Um, where like if there's something that you want to do and I find like again talking to my students this is often coming from a place of like lack of self-confidence where they're like oh well I can't apply for that job because you know you need 13 years of experience or I'm not a chemical engineer or you know people who do that went to this school that is ridiculous apply for all of the jobs um, and whether you think you're qualified or not and go in there and interview for them and, and take them because everyone else is doing that. <laughs> if you are the only one who's sitting around waiting for something that you um, technically check all the boxes on paper, you're really doing yourself a disservice because all the guys around you are just going for it. And sometimes they're getting it and sometimes they're not, but you're definitely not getting them because you're not trying. And so I think, especially in the legal industry, so many people think that they can't go for something because they don't meet the requirements. And I just say, go for all of the things. If you don't get them, then you're in no worse off position than you were before you I think that's great advice. And I know this exact, like this exact thing that you're saying, especially for women, I do a course on women's leadership and HP did a study many, many years ago. And they found that women, if they don't meet every single requirement for job posting, won't apply. And men, even if they meet up, meet like 60% of the requirements will, will apply. And it's like, go exactly like you're saying, like, go for it. You're never going to get the job. You're never going to have the opportunity even to network with the people who are hiring if you don't go yeah, after yeah. it. So I think that's fantastic advice. And I really do agree with you in terms of, I like how you said multi-level networking. It's a really good phrase because you're saying don't just network with your peers, but network with law firms, network with your teachers. Everybody around you is part of your network. And so you want to build those relationships because they can lead to great opportunities. But nothing will happen if you just stay very quiet and in your comfort zone. Sometimes you have to get a little bit uncomfortable to push yourself yeah. into, into the world. Yep, definitely. And I like also the this whole idea of like lack of self-confidence because you don't have, especially as a student or somebody who's starting out in the career, you don't always have all that confidence, especially if you're a young associate and some partner is marking up everything that you do like every minute of the day. You don't have all that confidence. So you really have to find a way to build it up in yourself. And, and networking is a good way to do that, just getting out there. Definitely. And, you know, again, I tell my students, you don't actually have to be self-confident. You just need to act like you are, right? Until you actually get to a point in your life, in your career, where you, you feel more comfortable with what you've done. But if initially it, you feel like it's super awkward, fine, <laughs> no, but you still need to do it. Um, and then, you know, hopefully it will come along later. You don't need to wait until you actually are confident to act like it. That's exactly right. Because sometimes you just, some days you feel it and some days you don't also. So it's good to, it's good to know how to, you know, how to find it. I have a pair of shoes that give me confidence. I call them, you know, my confident shoes. And I wear them when I have to there present in front of large audiences. They're my, that's my superpower when I need it. <laughs> yeah, find your confidence shoes. <laughs> 
Well, it's been great talking with you. Thank you so much for your time today. And um, if anybody wanted to find you, could they find you on LinkedIn or on your website? Yes, any of those. Um, I admit that I'm not as good at LinkedIn as I should be. So if you send me a message there and I don't respond, it's just because I don't know how or whatever. Um, So feel free to uh, find me on uh, christelia.com, which is my website. You can uh, email me. You can find that pretty readily through Google search at the, you know, the Colorado Law Faculty, and I'm happy to, to chat with anyone. Well, thanks for your generosity of time today. Of course. Thank you, Stephanie. Have a good one. Okay, you too. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Her Gavel. Make sure to subscribe and rate us. For our show notes and information on upcoming episodes, visit our website at hergavel.com. And if you'd like more information about coaching, training, or any of my books, please send email to stephanie at hergavel.com. Be sure to stay tuned for our next episode of Her Gavel, where we will continue to shadow the glass ceiling for women in law.